are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Diker. Thanks for joining me for episode 51, Proofreading for Fun and Profit. The show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. In this episode, appellate specialist Jamie Moses and I will discuss the importance of proofreading and how we approach this important task. So, Jamie Moses, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, I wanted to cover the topic of proofreading, and and specifically proofreading long-form writing like appellate briefs and and I kind of threw it out to a few people and I could I could almost see your eyes light up across the internet. You were like, I want to talk about proofreading. <laughs> Surprisingly, yes. I like to edit a lot. So now I obviously anybody who listens to this podcast, we don't have to convince them that proofreading is important. We don't have to make the case for that. But I I even amongst those people I imagine there's a range Right. Um, my question to you is how, how important do you think proofreading is or or really to get to the heart of it more specifically, how important is it to file a brief that does not have any errors in it, any typographical errors? We won't even get into substantive errors. Right. That's a different podcast. But but how important is it to you uh, to to file a brief that has no errors? Um, unfortunately, it's very important. Um, I am one of those people that is so embarrassed, especially when I'm getting ready for oral argument and I see a mistake. I hate it. Um, it you know, it's worse if the other side has pointed it out. And unfortunately, I do not, I don't point things out in a condescending or attacking way. But if, if someone spells something wrong, I do, you know, the bracket sick bracket when I put the right name in. Um, I'll admit having done that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've, I, I do do that. Um, you know, it, it's innocent, but it may be incorrect. I mean, if someone's mixed up the parties, if, oh gosh, if someone says, you know, we do not find, and they quote it as we find, I'm going to correct that, obviously. Um, so I, it's important to me that I don't have mistakes in my briefs, but I will tell you, I've relaxed a little bit as I get older, simply because the pace at which we practice law now does not give us the luxury of our briefs being perfect, number one. Number two, we don't have the resources. I don't know about you, but, you know, 20 years ago, I had a secretary and a paralegal to myself. Now I share one secretary with five to six other lawyers. I share a paralegal with 10 other lawyers. We just don't have the time and the resources anymore. Um, so if something gets by, it gets by. And I just, as long as it doesn't affect the substance of what I argue, I just have to let it go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And that's a reasonable caveat that, you know, we, we can only do what we can do within the demands of our job and, and the the time that we can allot to these things and the staff and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But at some level, I, I think we agree. It's, it's a, it's a critical, uh, you know, measure of professionalism at some level, you know, errors are embarrassing and it shows that you either don't know better or more likely that you just, 
didn't have the time, you know, or, or, or maybe the interest to fix it. So <laughs> let's hope at least it's the time, not the interest, right? Correct. Correct. <laughs> but you know, certainly mistakes do happen and it, it, we hope it doesn't happen very often and it, and it is painful. And, and you mentioned a lot of times when I catch those sorts of things, it is when you're getting ready for oral argument, which is just when you don't want the, <laughs> the little extra pain, right? Of, Ooh, <laughs> I wish I hadn't seen that. Yep. yep. Um, have you ever uh, had a situation where you have refiled a brief or filed an amended brief because of a typographical error? I have not. Um, I have not done so. Uh, the only time, no, the, the, the only time I've ever filed something supplemental with the court that was not requested is when a mistake was made at oral argument regarding a representation of a fact. That's it. I figure, you know, I, I figure the judges have got to be somewhat forgiving. Um, you know, if if you know, there's a I do a edit technique where I always search for the word trail because that's sometimes what I <laughs> type instead of trial. And so, yep. it, you know, I do trail, trial, statue, statutes, state. Um, I do all those interchangeably because they sometimes get typed in a hurry. Um, and I've got to assume that if I were to write trail court instead of trial court, the court or their clerks are going to forgive me. So I don't worry about that kind of stuff. I think that's right. I, I can't recall ever doing it myself either, but I actually had an instance recently where I talked an opposing lawyer out of filing an amended. They, they contacted me and said, would you object to? And I said, no. But I said, honestly, you know, and I was being honest with her. I said, honestly, if I were you, I don't think I'd file an amended brief for that. Mm -hmm. You know, it was one of those things they caught. It was fairly obvious what they, what they meant to say, you know, and I know, I'm sure they were embarrassed. And I, I sort of talked to them. I just, I just don't think it's worth, <laughs> you know, I don't think it's worth it. Well, think about the strategy, Dwayne. If, um, you know, if, if, if you've already filed an answer brief and the, they're coming back and saying, I'd like to amend my initial brief, be careful what you wish for. Oh, for <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> you know, you're going to give them another chance to reply? No way. Just just address it if you get a chance. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. Chances are you don't deal with appellate bonds on a daily basis. But when you do, it's important and it's urgent. CSBA has an extensive collection of educational and reference materials on their website, including articles like How Much Does an Appeal Bond Cost? or Using Real Estate to Secure Appeal Bonds, and even has a state-by-state -state guide to appeal bond requirements. But if you still have questions or just want to talk to a knowledgeable appellate bond specialist, call CSBA at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes, but I suggest you take an opportunity right now to add their contact information to your own contact list so you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. CSBA is a national agency that assists with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. In addition to being a longtime sponsor of this podcast, CSBA is a premier sponsor of the Florida Bar's Appellate Practice Section. The next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, 
giving you one less thing to worry about. Now, there is a difference, obviously, between revising, editing, and proofreading. What we're, what we're really talking about, proofreading is this final stage of the editing process where we're focusing on sort of surface errors, misspellings, mm-hmm. mistakes in grammar, punctuation, that sort of thing. Proofreading, we may have another podcast where we can talk about there's some, there's some techniques to, to revision and editing too, but we're really focusing on, on proofreading, which is sort of the last step after you've finished all the other editing do you have a process for proofreading? Can you can you sort of describe your workflow of proofreading? Sure. I mean, it depends on the amount of time I have. If I have the luxury of time, I put the brief down for a couple of days um, and just try to completely forget about it. Um, and then I, and I not to interrupt you. I, I think the importance of that can't be can't be uh, overstated. Right. And again, you know, a lot of times we don't have that luxury, but boy, sometimes when I set something aside for a couple of days, it gives your brain a chance to, to stop, you know, seeing what you think should be there and seeing what's really there. And that's a, it's a great, it's a great benefit if you have that time, but you know, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And at that point, if I'm going back to it, So that means what I've already done is, um, and you know, I learned this lesson at the second DCA, I got yelled at once at an oral argument. Um, uh, Judge Webster, um, I got up to make my argument as the appellee and he said, I wanna talk to you, Ms. Moses, about your brief. My clerks had a horrible time following it. And um, he really laid into me. And what the problem was is that the appellant had laid down the issues in the wrong order. And I laid them out in the appropriate order. You don't even get to D, which was his A, if you don't get past A. He, right. I learned after that that if I ever change the order of, an or, of a brief, that I refer back to what the, the pages in the um, initial brief, what it's responding to. I learned a very important lesson. But assuming that's been done, and I'm literally just making sure I've dotted my I's, crossed my T's, I've got the appropriate spacing and punctuation, um, then what I do is I literally just go section by section. So I, I start with the statement of the case, which is normally my first substantive section, and I read it all by itself, and I look at it. Is the case cited properly? Is my record site correct? Um, you know, and then I move on to the statement of facts and I just go it piece by piece by piece. Um, it may not make sense reading it up broken up then. Um, but that's how I do it to focus just on that. Um, and actually I misspoke. I don't check my record sites or my case sites at that point. At that point, I'm literally just looking for typos, the trail versus trial, the statue versus statute. Um, the spacing, things like that. And then I have a whole section where I just check my cases. That's all I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I look for the spacing. I look for whether the fourth DCA, the TH is up in the air because I don't like that. You know, for second, third, it's down. So for first, fourth, and fifth, it needs to be down. Um, And hopefully, yeah, hopefully those listening know what I mean. Um, And I check to make sure if I've short-sighted a case, where is the original site earlier in the brief? Or did I delete a section 
and now I don't have an accurate site. Um, I check for all of that. Then I move on to the record and I literally check every record site to make sure it's accurate. Um, again, that's assuming I have the time to do that. Um, I don't leave either one of those to a paralegal or an assistant. Um, I just don't. I do it myself. Um, and that, you know, that's tedious. And then you got to check the table of contents and table of authorities. Um, and you got to make sure those are accurate. Um, and that that can be tedious, too, because one, you know, a, delete a sentence here and there and you've changed everything. Um, again, luxury of time is the key. If I don't have it, then I've just got to cross my fingers and hope it happens. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like we have a similar process. So I, I'll just sort of describe my process because I think the they're very similar. Mm -hmm. And I think. Um, you and I do things the same way in that these things build on each, build on themselves, right? Like you can't check the accuracy of quotes until you've, until you're done messing around with the text, yeah. right? And you can't uh, check uh, page numbers in your table of contents until you've made sure all your page breaks are where they want to be. So, so my step is the first thing I do is I do a, like a, what I would call a grammar punctuation sort of spelling check, yeah. right? And, and read the whole thing all through. And I try to ignore all the other things and just focus on the grammar issues. And then I'll come back through and look at the blue book sites, uh, make sure that uh, the point sites are there. Like you said, make sure that I'm not short citing something that I took out somewhere else, you know, just really check the blue book form. The third time through is record sites. And I agree with you. I, I want to do that myself. Uh, even if I have maybe had someone else originally decide what record site should be there. I want to go back and lay eyes on it because, yep. you know, that's so important to your credibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and I check the accuracy of quotes to make sure, you know, occasionally I've gone through on the proofreading stage and changed something without paying attention to the fact that it was in a quote because yep. I liked it better <laughs> and realized, oh, no, I got to stick with, you know, what was said. Yep. So then as we're getting to the end, then I get to I look at. Uh, you know, page breaks and headings and just to make sure that uh, things are, are breaking properly. And then sort of the last thing is to check and make sure that my table of contents and my table of authorities is correct with all the changes that I've made. So mm -hmm. it's a lot of steps, but it all kind of builds on each other and you have to do it in order or it, or it messes up. Agreed. Agreed. I also do, I do a global search for the word was because, um, you know, you hear from the judges, they want an active voice, active voice, active voice, active voice. And so when I say, you know, the complaint was filed, I change that later to appellant filed the complaint, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, so I've, I've, I've just got a list of these words I look for that sort of trigger, um, you know, you could tighten this up, you could make it more concise. For a long time, I had a reputation at the fifth for having some of the shortest, most concise briefs. Um, and I like that. Uh, you know, I've, I, I've filed maybe two or three 50 page briefs in my almost 30 year career. I just, I think you lose people after about page 25. Um, yeah. And so I'm constantly cutting. Just do you really need this? And I consider that you know, substantively, I look at my argument, but when I get to the editing and the proofreading, I just start looking at, are you just being repetitive here? Um, you know, 
could you cut off that mod cut out that modifying phrase and it still says the same thing so yes now i consider that to be more editing and revision than proofreading but i totally do the same thing like one one of my earliest things that i do in this process is look for what i call ex excess words mm -hmm. you know if there's just more if there's if i could say the same thing in eight words instead of 12 words i like it much better i was going to say i actually eyeball you know i look at the page i used to be a paper proofer i really love paper and you you know the joke about me using my pencils I love paper and pencils, but in this whole work from home, you know, post pandemic and, and, you know, I'm in Colorado quite a bit. I, I don't have the resources to be printing everything out. So I do a lot more on the screen now, but I like to like blow up a paragraph and just eyeball how many periods are in there, meaning sentences. And if I don't see a lot of periods, I've got this huge run on sentence, don't I? Um, and I try mm -hmm. to get rid of those because I, I, I just think you start losing your reader when they've got to keep following and following and following when I could make my point much shorter. So I, I do do that in the editing stage as well. Just pull up on my screen a paragraph and just look at it and say, you know, does that look like a run on sentence? Maybe it needs to be fixed. So, yeah. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the the paper. I was going to ask you about that. And and I think that my uh, position is the same as yours, which is I used to do a lot more proofing on paper. Before the pandemic, when I had a huge laser printer, you know, <laughs> well, one in my office and one down the hall from me, uh, and an un endless supply of paper and toner, I would print briefs and, and look at them on paper. Uh, but now I really have gotten away from that because now it's my printer and my toner and my paper and and uh, I don't have the high volume printing. And so I have just really adjusted to working off the screen uh, almost entirely. Well, and, you know, we've been told over and over again that that's what the court's doing. So I am mm -hmm. trying to imagine what my well, and of course, we know all the clerks are younger and completely um, paperless. And so I like to see how are they gonna look at my brief? How, how does it look to them? Um, and I think that's important. I, I thought I did not wanna go to the, um, what is it, Bookman, whatever, what's the new one we can use? Yeah, yeah, Bookman, yeah. yeah. But actually now I look at it and I'm like, ah, I see why Times New Roman is not good on the eyes and Bookman is. So mm -hmm. I've, I've converted to that as well. I'm so surprised I have, um, but I have. So yeah, I don't do hardly any paper editing anymore. Now I'm curious, I, I assume you use Microsoft Word? Yes. Do you, obviously we all use the spell checker and we're aware of the limitations of the spell checker, like trail courts yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that sort of thing. I'm curious, do you use the grammar checker feature or have you disabled it? Because I go back and forth on whether that is of any use to me. I, I don't. Um, I mean, I think it's on and things get highlighted, like when they think my sentence doesn't make sense and it'll underline a word and then suddenly I answer it. But I don't, I don't really rely on it. Um, yeah. I really don't. I find every, every once in a while it will catch something that I, you know, that I, I want to change, but I find it's just not particularly useful for legal writing. Correct. 
and and I have my style. I mean, I'm I'm going on 30 years here almost of doing this, and I just sort of write in a certain way. Um, I remember my husband was a client of mine at one time, and he I was handling an appeal for him, and he kept saying, "We need to add more to the sentence, and we need to do more." And and I finally just said, "Look, it's it's my name on the brief, <laughs> and this is the way I write." This is the way I express myself. This is the way I write. This is exactly how I'm going to express myself in oral argument. It needs to be consistent. Um, yeah. And so I did win that debate, um, luckily. <laughs> <laughs> now, again, again, with the caveats of time and resources and that sort of thing, but in an ideal situation, do you routinely hand your brief off to another lawyer at your firm to help with the proofing or even a non-lawyer? Well, it depends. Um, you know, as you know, we do a lot of work uh, for other people. So obviously my brief is going to go to the trial lawyer that tried the case, won the summary judgment, etc. Um, I have occasionally, on occasion, I have asked either my paralegal or my assistant and just said, look, I kind of want to get your idea of what you think I'm conveying here. And does it make sense? You know, it, surprisingly, in the most difficult cases, those are the ones that I'll ask for the help, you know, because I, I want to see if they think it makes sense. I do have one paralegal that if I ask her to do the table of contents and table authority, she reads the brief anyway and gives me her thoughts. She just likes to. Um, but, yeah, I will hand it off always to the, the trial lawyer, of course. Um, and if it's a big, big, big case then we have mechanisms here at Hall and Knight where things get done that way. Um, but it's got to, it's got to warrant the man or woman power on a case. Um, yeah. you know, I won't do that to, for example, in a family law appeal where I'm being paid personally by, uh, the former husband or the former wife, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna staff the appeal with four and five people. That's just not fair. Yeah. But I will, sorry to Dwayne to interrupt you. I will ask the client. I always send my brief to the client and say, this is due Wednesday. Will you please review it and get back to me? Um, and, you know, I've, I've, get, I've received some good feedback from clients before. Um, I, I don't recall the record saying that, or I, I don't remember that being said at trial. And sure enough, you know, that may have not been exactly how it was said at trial. So, you know, you can get some good information from your clients. Yeah, no, I do like that, too. When when the clients have enough interest, you know, and enough patience to to actually read and give you some feedback. Um, I like that because it gives them a better idea of what the issues really are. You know, and if there's something that you're saying that they don't like, uh, I'd much rather hear about it before I file the brief. Correct. Correct. <laughs> So I find that, I, and I'm guessing you're probably the same way, when I, in the moments before I file a brief, I get very obsessive about the, you know, what used to be the paper copy, right, that I would look at way too many times. Uh, and now it's the PDF copy of just, you know, that I always want to, uh, I will never make a change or have something done and then hand it off to somebody else to file. I always want to review the final, final product. Um, I, I'm assuming you probably feel the same way. Yeah. And in fact, my assistant, she doesn't file a single thing. She doesn't send a single letter. She doesn't file a single thing unless she gets an email back from me that says good to go. 
not a single, it could be a one page, my notice of appearance, she won't file unless I give her the good to go. So that applies to briefs, that applies to everything. It's just sort of our practice. It's it's her CYA um, and I get it, I get it. And it's um, my, you know, then I'm ultimately responsible if there's something wrong um, because I should have been the last set of eyes on it. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, my assistant knows the same, you know, that that I'm obsessive about these things and, and we do sort of the same thing. And I think that's a good system. You know, I think it's a good system because even though, you know, we routinely give our login credentials to our assistants, you know, ultimately the buck stops with oh, us. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Well, and it's so embarrassing when there is a mistake. And, um, you know, like I, I read a brief that was served last night at almost midnight, which just cracks me up. And they made this statement that I had confessed error. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm the appellee and they're accusing me of confessing error. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Of course, they were absolutely wrong. But you know what it's like to be reading something in a brief, either substantively, like I confessed error, or when they're they're adding the brat, the the sick around, you know what I mean? And you're like, oh, wait a minute. I know I didn't do that. So um, there's nothing worse than than that feeling. So I, I do want to be the last to see it. I'm not going to file it myself unless I have to, you know, if I'm in a bind, because I just trust my assistant to do it proper because she does it more than me. Um, but I, I'm definitely going to see it before it gets filed for sure. Yeah, I, I generally don't file myself either unless I have to. But like if, if I'm filing a brief so late that my assistant is gone for the day, I feel like that's a loss. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I never I never want to be in the situation where I'm filing that late because then everything gets rushed. There's, this proofreading process gets yeah, rushed. I right? actually that brief that we're talking about, I emailed opposing counsel at 615 and said, hey, are you filing your reply brief today? <laughs> And he wrote back and he said, yeah, I have till 1159. And I'm like, right, I still got four or five hours. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay. Because I was waiting for the email asking for an extension of time. So I kind of wanted yeah. to consult with my client in advance. But that's that's another podcast for sure. Yeah. No, my assistant and I have a joke that if, you know, if we're if we're filing the brief on the day it's due, you know, that's already. Yeah. That's already late, but, you know, certainly we want to file by two o'clock or something so that we're, you know, not, uh, not pushed for time. I'm telling you, Dwayne, we were, um, separated at birth, you and I, you were, you, were, you, <laughs> well, you know, somehow us appellate lawyers, we all seem to, you know, converge on the same, uh, obsessions yes. and yes. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yep. 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 <laughs> Jamie, thanks. I appreciate it. I think, um, you know, this is a this is a, a minor topic in the grand scheme of things, but I do think it's important, and I, I think it's it's in, it was interesting to me because you and I didn't really discuss this beforehand. It's interesting that our processes, you know, that have developed over the years are still are very similar because yeah. because I think it's logical, and I think probably everybody has has somewhat of a similar process if they've really thought it through. Yeah, or again, it's all based on the luxury of time. You know, I know, for example, the guy who filed the brief last night at almost midnight, I mean, I saw all the typos. I know, oh, I don't know about you, but I can't stand it when, because I like to full justify. And Mm -hmm. if there's a paragraph that's not full justified, I am livid. Well, you know, I saw this throughout the brief, half of it's full, half is whatever. So 
again, the luxury of time lets you be as meticulous as you and I would like to be. I fight with my kids over this all the time because, uh, you know, they're college age kids, but they will give me something to proofread. And I have to try so hard not to full justify their stuff, but they don't like it, you know, and I'm like. Well, and I thought, (laughs) I feel like I, I attended a seminar where actually it's not as good on the eyes, but I can't not full justify. I just. I can't either. It's just too sloppy looking. I don't, I don't like it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So I agree. Jamie, thanks so much for being on my on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me again. Thanks again to Jamie Moses for being a guest on the show. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. When you need a bond, you often need it quickly. CSBA's contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment now, add it to your contacts, so you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will be out in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.